got a question for you today. How much does what someone looks like impact your ability to help take care of them when they're in need? Let me ask that again. How much does what someone looks like, what their appearance is, how much does that impact your ability to reach out to them when they're in need? In the 1970s, a Florida newspaper decided to find out what type of person would get help the quickest if they were a stranded motorist on the side of the road in Florida. Uh, This newspaper hired a 22-year-old actress named Sally Mullins who played a driver in distress in five different roles. Dressed in a double-breast suit, portraying the role of a businesswoman, she stood by her Pontiac Grand Am on the side of U.S. Route 1 in Florida, holding up a stop sign and waited for help. A minute and a half, 62 vehicles later, Bill Leonardi pulled over to offer assistance. Disguised with about eight months of padding and looking very pregnant, she had to wait two and a half minutes and more than a hundred cars whizzed by before paramedics Bob Smith and Dorothy Jennings, who were driving in the opposite direction, made a U-turn and came back and offered to help. With her appearance altered dramatically and looking like a little old lady in her 80s, she had to wait nearly five minutes and watch 200 vehicles drive by before two people pulled over to help her, 22-year-old college co-ed, Glenna Newell, and land surveyor Greg Smith, age 29. Costumed in faded jeans, a loud floral blouse, a wild blonde wig, and looking every bit the part of a displaced hippie, no one stopped at all. She stood by her car for more than 15 minutes while over 350 cars, trucks, vans, buses, and motorcycles zoomed by. No one even slowed down. In her last role, Sally wore a miniskirt, makeup, and looked very much 22 years old. Sally no sooner put up the hood of her car when Ed Kent of West Palm Beach barreled to a stop right behind her. The damsel in distress outfit stopped a car in nine seconds. Does the way somebody looks impact how we respond to their needs? You bet it does. We're finishing our series of messages today from the parables of Jesus with a parable that has left ripples in our culture that we still see today. There are laws named for this parable, hospitals named for this parable, and even people who don't know God at all, who have never read the Bible, recognize the phrase, the Good Samaritan. If you've got your Bibles, take them out and turn to Luke chapter 10. If you've got an electronic device, whatever, you can uh, go to YouVersion. We're going to be reading in the ESV, in the English Standard Version today, Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one out of the pew, out of the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't have a a paper Bible at home and would like to have one, stop by the, the information desk and we would love to send one home with you today. Reading in Luke 10, chapter, or chapter 10, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, 
you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This guy was a lawyer, but not a lawyer in the sense that we think of. This is not somebody who tried cases before a judge, not a defense attorney or a prosecutor. Instead, he was an expert of the biblical law. That's what they were called at that point in time, a lawyer. Uh, and, and so he, he was meticulous about the details of his faith. He memorized the Old Testament law. He knew it inside and out. He probably copied the first five books of the Bible by hand for, for his occupation. This guy asks Jesus a life-changing question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Don't miss it. That question is a critical one for all of us. It's a question that we all should ask on a regular basis. It was the right question, and it was even asked to the right person. There was no better person for, for this man to ask the question of than Jesus. But you notice Jesus was a master at answering questions with other questions. Rather than fall into this guy's trap, Jesus turned the table and, and he asked the question right back to the lawyer. He said, okay, guy, you're an expert in the law. There are 613 laws. You tell me, what's the most important law? And the lawyer got it right. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6 that says, You'll love, you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And he quoted from Leviticus 19 that said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This guy knew the law. He asked the right question and he got the right answer. That question is actually found three times in the New Testament. And at one point in time, um, uh, uh, another religious leader asked Jesus that question and says, uh, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, all of the law and the some of the, uh, the some of the law uh, the law and the prophets is all pulled together in in those two commands: love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And and this religious leader said to him, "You know what? You're right about that. That is that does capsulize everything." And Jesus said to that religious leader, "You're not far from the kingdom of God. You you get it." You get it. And in the third time where that question comes up, it's similar to this one. A, a, a religious leader comes and tries to trap Jesus by, uh, by getting him to answer this question. Jesus turns it around right back to him and, and asks him the question, and, and ultimately they come right back to the same answer. Um, that question is a question that we've got to grapple with, that we've got to wrestle with, that we've got to get a hold of. What do we need to do to inherit eternal life? What do we need to do to be saved? Um, if you know the New Testament, we, we talk in terms of what the New Testament says, and, and the, the answer that we typically talk about is, what do we find when people wanted to become fully devoted followers of Jesus? They had to place their faith in Jesus. They had to believe that Jesus was God's son. They had to repent of their sins, to turn their, to turn their life, to change their ways. They needed to confess that Jesus was Lord, that he was the Lord of their life. They, they uh, took the step of baptism to, to demonstrate to, that to people. That's, that's what we find through the New Testament. 
that's not in contradiction to what Jesus said. Jesus, our faith in Jesus can only happen because of, uh, because we love God with our whole heart, because we love God and respond to him and take care of the world around us. We love the people around us. Jesus brings that all together in a powerful way. This guy asked the right question and he gave the right answer, but the answer wasn't really the issue for him. The answer wasn't really the issue. I grew up wanting to know the right answer to all kinds of questions. I loved math as a kid because in math, there's always a correct answer. You know, you can always figure out the, that problem, that issue. Um, and when I was a teenager, a, a, a young teenager, in the, in the group of churches that I was a part of, we had, a, we had a thing called Bible Bowl. It was a quiz kind of a show where um, you studied a particular section of Scripture. Uh, in my case, one year it was Genesis. In another case, it was, uh, it was the book of John. Uh, in another case, it was um, Joshua and Judges. You study all of that, and then you come together with other churches who have other Bible Bowl teams, and the quiz master would ask questions. You'd buzz in. Uh, if you got the answer right, you got bonus questions. It was a really cool thing. I liked, I liked it. I was competitive. And, and you could always get the right answer. There's an interesting thing about Bible Bowl, though, because there were some really good teams who, you know, as soon as the questions would start, they'd buzz in and have the right answer. Even though the players knew the answers, with a lot of the teams, it was very clear that the Word of God that they had memorized had not really penetrated their hearts. Because some of those teams were downright mean. They were intimidating. They used all kinds of of, of ploys to try and gain an advantage in the Bible Bowl contest because there was scholarship money at stake from, from Bible colleges. They wanted the prestige of being the best in the country. They knew the right answers, but it didn't impact the way that they lived at all. You know some adults like that too, don't you? People who have the right answers people who have Scripture memorized, people who know theology, uh, people who are well-read, but their lives don't match their speech. Their walk doesn't match their talk. Why'd this guy want to trap Jesus? He was all about the law, all about the system, all about the legalistic framework that he helped construct and perpetuate. Jesus, on the other hand, was not about the system. He was about the soul. Jesus cared about what was going on in the hearts of the people who were there. Jesus wasn't concerned about external actions for the sake of the external actions. He was concerned about what motivated them, what caused them to do those actions. The lawyer wanted to trap Jesus and somehow use Jesus' words against him. What he didn't realize was that Jesus was the Word, John 1. He didn't consider whether or not he, the lawyer, really loved God or whether he really loved his neighbor. He just wanted to feel better about himself by making Jesus feel like he was painted into a corner. The Jews knew that they had to love more than their physical neighbors, the, the people who lived close to them. But they were convinced that they didn't have to love their enemies. They were certain that they didn't need to love their Roman conquerors. And they were absolutely sure that they didn't need to love 
the Gentiles that they lived among. So this lawyer turns to Jesus and said, okay, he's thinking, who don't I have to love? Who's my neighbor? Verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest was one of those guys who served in the temple in Jerusalem. In the Jewish world, a priest was as religious as you could get. They were men who were respected by all of the Jewish culture. They were leaders. They were influential. They were the best of the best spiritually, kind of like the honor guard who serves at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Washington, D.C. They were a big, big deal. And he sees the man in need and walks by on the other side. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite was religious by birth. He was a descendant of Aaron, of Moses' brother. This, this is a guy who would have known and loved the law, whose entire life would have been wrapped up in the Jewish religious world. Priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. So he wasn't quite at the level of the priest, but he was still a, devout, a devoted religious leader. He saw the need, and he passed by. Verse 33, but a Samaritan... It's important to understand who the Samaritans were and to capture this because of the story that Jesus tells. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half, uh, um, half other nationalities. Their ancestors had, had intermarried with the Jews. And as a result of that, they had really kind of drifted from the, from the true faith. They had accepted the gods of the people that they had intermarried with. And they were despised by the Jews because of it. The Jews were proud of their heritage. They were proud of their spiritual cleanness. And they looked down at the Samaritans. They despised the Samaritans. They were arrogant and haughty around the Samaritans. And if you were a Samaritan and you were treated that way by the Jews, how do you think you responded to the Jews? They hated them just as much because they looked down at them, kind of like the University of Michigan and Michigan State. Just saying, just saying. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think provided or proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. There are some scholars who think that this may actually have been a real-life story rather than a parable. I, I think the power of the story, though, is that it is a parable. It's a story that Jesus made up because the setting is very real. Everyone listening understood that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a terribly dangerous place. 
a place where thieves and robbers hung out, where gangs descended and preyed upon travelers. One thing I read this week said that there were, there were as many as 12,000 people living in the area between Jerusalem and Jericho out in the wilderness that were thieves, 12,000 people. It was a long journey. It was about 18 miles. So it was going to take between six and eight hours if you were walking really fast the entire time to make that journey. It was all downhill. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is about 825 feet below sea level. So from here to here, over 18 miles, it was a lot of downhill. And Two-thirds of the way from Jerusalem to Jericho was the place that was the most pivotal place. It was the place where the robberies took place um, more than any place else. It was a, it was a place marked by the walls of, of, of blood is, is what they called it. Everyone knew the priests. Everyone knew the Levites. Everyone listening hated the Samaritans. The Jews were arrogant, haughty, with the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't like them back. That's why I think the story is one that Jesus created rather than a real-life event. The expert in the law would have, would have um, identified with the priest and the Levite. He would have thought, oh, yeah, they're going to respond to this need. He would have been shocked to his core that Jesus made a Samaritan the hero of the story, which is what made the story so powerful. I don't know about you, but when I read the parable of the Good Samaritan, when I read that story, it's really convicting to me because there are so many times that I think that I play the part of the priest and the Levite. Why do you think that they passed by this guy in desperate need? One reason he could have passed by, would have just, they could have passed by, would have just been that they were afraid. They were afraid that if they stopped to help this guy, the robbers were going to come and get, that, get him as well. Um, beat him, take all of his money, all of his stuff. He might have thought, you know what, that's not my responsibility. Somebody's going to call 911, and there's going to be a donkey that comes out that takes this guy away. It's, it's all going to be, it's, that's not my job. It may have been that he had a personal agenda. It may, may have been that he was worried more about his comfort than taking care of some guy who was hurt. He may have even thought, you know, that guy... That guy was just dumb to walk this road alone. He was foolish and stupid. And the fact that he got beat up, that's his own fault. That's not my responsibility. Maybe he was just selfish and he didn't want to take the time. He didn't want to invest of himself to help meet the needs of that man. Whatever the case, he deliberately avoided contact, walked on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Historians tell us, they found from records, that the average cost for a night at an inn at this point in time was one thirty-second of a denarii. So when he gives him two denarii, he's paying for two months care for this guy that he had never met before. 
This guy's going to take a lot of time to recover. He's got severe injuries. He was in bad shape. In 1973, at Princeton Theological Seminary, two researchers uh, did a study to find out how people would react in certain kinds of situations. They took 40 students, and um, half of the students were told, uh, they, were, they were all talked to individually, half the students were told, we want you to give a talk on the Good Samaritan. The other half were going to give a talk on some other topic. And then the researchers divided the, the people randomly up into three different categories. One, one of the categories was that they said, hey, here's the deal. You're going to go give this talk, but, but you're running way late. You, you've got to just really book it to get over there and, and give your talk. So they were in an in, in extreme rush to get there. The second group of people that they talked to, they said, hey, here's the deal. You're right on time. You don't waste any time, but you got to get there. You're going to go give your talk. Um, don't mess around. And the third group, they said, you know what? You're going to arrive there early. You got lots of time. No big deal at all. It, it, the results were about what you would expect. 63% of the people who had plenty of time stopped to help along the way because there was a person who had been mugged in between the, the building where they were and the building where they were to give the talk. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the participants actually stepped over um, the guy who was injured. But 63% per, of the people who had lots of time stopped to help. 45% of, of, of the people in the middle group, the people who, um, who were right on time, stopped to help. But the people who were rushed, only 10% of the people stopped to help. And there was no difference in, in, the, in the people who were given the talks. The people who were given the talks on the Good Samaritan or other topics responded almost identically in that study in 1973. In 2008, 35 years later, ABC News did a similar kind of experiment, kind of as a follow-up on the Princeton Theological Seminary study. ABC News placed ads for people to, to participate in an on-camera tryout for ABC News. They were to do an extemporaneous talk on camera about a random subject, but the subject wasn't random. They chose a subject, and everyone chose the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. They read it from Luke 10, and they were to go over to a new building and to talk about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. They had to walk through a park in order to get to the studio where, where the camera would be, where they would give their talk. And in the park, on the, beside the sidewalk, there was a man in distress. There were two different actors that played that role. They were crying. They were distraught. They were clearly in need of help. Out of the 40 people in the study, 22 of the volunteers, more than half, didn't stop. They rushed by the actors. They proceeded to the studio and gave the speech on the Good Samaritan, having passed by the person in crisis. Their words were the complete opposite of their actions from just minutes before. Like the Princeton study, they created, ABC News created, half of the people were in a rush and half of the people had plenty of time. In order to get their chance at something they really wanted to be on TV, they would have to hurry to, to, uh, in order to go and, and do their screen test. Only 35% of the people in a hurry stopped to help the actors. The people who weren't in a hurry, 80% of the people stopped by to help the actors. One other factor was interesting. Um, that Princeton didn't do. 
One of the actors that ABC News used was white and the other actor was black. The white actor was three times more likely to be helped than the black actor. What's the takeaway for us when we think about living out the parable of the Good Samaritan? I'll tell you what it is for me. I've got to recognize in myself that often I determine, I decide who I'm going to respond to help based on what they look like on the outside. And often I base my response on how much time I have. It was convicting of me to read about those two studies because it made me think, when I think I'm trying to do more and more and more and crowd my schedule together, I put myself in a position that I miss the appointments of God in my life. I don't know if if you go there too, but there is this reality that we need to build into our schedule the ability to respond in the way that God wants The big question for us today is who do I need to love and how do I need to love them? Who do I need to love, God? Who have you put in my life? How do I show that? Because there are people all around who are made in the image of God, even though they don't look like me, that I need to respond to. What did it cost the Samaritan? What did it cost him to help take care of the traveler? It cost him his time. He's on this journey. He ends up spending the night in an inn that he didn't plan to. So he's at least a day late for whatever his appointments were. It cost him his time. It cost him his money. He paid out of his pocket to have this man cared for. Two months recovery in the inn. It cost him his comfort zone. He stepped out of his comfort zone to get down and and to go hand to hand with this wounded man who was a a Samaritan. It cost him his comfort. He took this man and put him on his animal. So rather than him riding the rest of the journey, he would have walked it. It cost him. It cost him resources that he had planned for himself. It says, uh, the, the story says that he took wine and oil and used those. Those were his resources. The wine was there to be used as an antiseptic. The oil probably to, to uh, just make him feel better as a, as a salve kind of thing. But he took stuff that was his and used it for this man. It would have cost him his reputation as well. Can you imagine when a Samaritan went back to his home? said, where you been? Well, there was this Jewish guy that was hurt, and I helped him. They would have said, what were you thinking? You're crazy, you're foolish, you're stupid. You never should have done that. And it cost him his safety. He he was willing to put his life on the line in a dangerous place to take care of this man's need. Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It's interesting to me that the lawyer, and I, I I don't think I'm reading too much into this, but the expert in the law didn't answer and say, a Samaritan. He, I, I think he couldn't bring his mouth to say that word. Who was the guy who helped him? A Samaritan. He couldn't do that. Instead, he says, the one who showed him mercy. John MacArthur, about this parable, said, this parable is not about who your neighbor is. This is about whether or not you are a neighbor. It's not who is my neighbor who qualifies to be loved. It's about 
Am I a neighbor who loves in an unqualified way? The question for us is, God, who are you calling me to love? The Jews thought that they didn't have to love the Gentiles, that they didn't have to love their enemies, but Jesus said otherwise. So the question for us today is, God, do I really have to love and fill in the blank? Do I really have to love my former spouse? Do I really have to love my parents? Do I really have to love my idiot brother-in-law? Do I really have to love my stepdad who abused me? Do I really have to love my boss who is so arrogant and obnoxious? Do I really have to love people who support Hillary for president? Do I really have to love people who support Trump for president? Do I really have to love people who work for causes that I don't believe in? Do I really have to love that refugee from Syria? Do I really have to love that Iraqi who works near me? Do I really have to love that homeless man who smells so foul? Do I really have to love that militant Muslim? The answer is yes. They are our neighbors. Jesus said to his closest followers in John 13, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John got that. When he wrote to the followers of Jesus years later, he said, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you understand that it's impossible to love someone that you hate? Let me say that again. Do you understand that it's impossible to love someone that you hate? The challenge today is this. When you see a need, meet that need. Not because you have to, but because it's a natural response of someone who loves God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength to love their neighbors themselves. God has rescued you. He's put you in place to rescue others. One of my regular prayers is, God, help me to see needs around me because it's so easy for me to be focused on my own stuff, on church stuff, on important stuff, but to miss the needs that are going on around me. That's my prayer all the time. My prayer as a result of this message is, God, don't just help me to see the need. Help me to respond to the need because there are so many times that I see the need and just think, nah, not doing it. I need to be the kind of neighbor that the Samaritan was. Don't be the priest. Don't be the Levite. Be a Samaritan. Warren Wearsby said, to the thieves, this traveling Jew was a victim to exploit. So they attacked him. To the priest and the Levite, he was a nuisance to avoid. So they ignored him. But to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and help so he took care of him. What Jesus said to the lawyer, he says to us.
go and keep on doing it. Keep on doing it likewise. How do you gain eternal life? Love the Lord your God with your heart and soul and mind and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. God, this parable Jesus told, it's hard. Lord, we want safety, security. We want our own agenda. We want our own comfort. And it's not in us of our own to just respond to needs spontaneously. God, we need you to fill us up so that we can see the needs around us, so that we can demonstrate the love that you've shown us without reservation. God, I pray that as a result of today that you would give us boldness, that that we would be bold agents in our world, here in Clinton County, God, wherever we are, that where there's needs, we would be the first responders. In the name of Jesus, amen.